Shiny and Santon, and it's episode 24, week 37 of 2020. We're well into September, and the temperatures are up, which is fantastic. I hope you are well wherever you are, wherever you find yourself listening, streaming, downloading this podcast. As always, I'm hugely grateful. And uh, yeah, maybe you're listening in the bath, maybe you're in the car taking a road trip now that we can move around, maybe you're listening whilst you go to sleep. I've heard people tell me this as well, that they lie in bed and just before they go to sleep they uh, catch up on uh, the weekly Santon Times podcast. Well, whatever it is uh, that's your uh, cup of tea, however you like to digest this, uh, you can always reach out to us on editor at santontimes.ca.today with your news, your feedback, your thoughts, and uh, you can connect on the Santon Times uh, social media pages uh, at Santon Times. And I'm thrilled to announce that we hit uh, 24,000 followers on Twitter this week, which is also really exciting. You can visit the blog at santantimes.ca.today and don't forget to subscribe, share and leave a review and rating of this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, SoundCloud and also we've got a YouTube channel and there's some pretty exciting stuff coming up there as well. We're going to probably uh, be recording uh, this podcast uh, for the next couple of weeks on location. Uh, It is Tourism Month, uh, September, and we decided, well, you know what? Let's get in the car. Let's go to some of those incredible destinations that we do have in uh, South Africa. And let me tell you, when we were doing research on this, I couldn't believe it. You hear about the usual places, you know, the usual places that people like to go to, the hotels, the lodges. But man, when you start digging deep and you really start looking at some of those destinations that are not necessarily on your bookings.com or on your trip advisors and you really start unearthing some real gems. I mean, you just think, my goodness, have we got everything going for us in South Africa? It's a couple of tweaks we need to make, but wow, we could be wiping the floor uh, with the rest of the world in terms of a tourism and travel destination of note. I'll leave it at that because we're going to get into more of that on location uh, to some of the incredible places we're going to be going. I want to welcome our listeners from Santon and Greater Santon, but also a lot of the international listeners. I know we've got a lot of people listening from all over the world, in particular this past week from Belgium and uh, the Kingdom of Eswatini. So thank you for tuning in. All is well in Santon land. (laughs) I'm uh, struggling a little bit with my tongue this morning as uh, this podcast is fueled by DeLonghi Coffee and uh, their fabulous bean to cup machine uh, is on standby. And I think if I have a couple of more sips, I might be able to uh, get through the rest of this uh, hour. And talking about uh, this week's episode, I've got another fabulous uh, guest lined up and I'm going to introduce her in uh, a second. It's uh, Lesejo Klabi, also known as Coconut Kells. Lesejo, good morning. Hi Alex, how are you? Uh, it's great to have you on, I'm wonderful. How are you doing? Well, I hope you've got something to, uh, to you know, give you a kick in the morning and get you going. But I think uh, the more we chat, the more we'll get into it. Yes. I'm, I'm one of those natural people. I don't drink coffee and stuff like that. So it, it'll happen naturally. <laughs> Are you more of a tea person? Are you that kind of water tea kind of person or no, not at all? I don't, like, I don't like hot drinks at all. I'm more of a hunter's drive person. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, there are Thursday mornings and Friday mornings and maybe even Saturday mornings where a hunter's dry might be the right thing after a late night out. Yeah. <laughs> not today, though. But no, yes. Not today. No, no, we'll, we'll, we won't be slurring through this. Uh, so, Lecha, Secho, how have you been doing, man? How's um, the past six months of 2020 been treating you? I, like, I don't want to even be, you know, facetious because I know some people have had a really, really tough go at things. Um, and obviously, staying at home is not fun, but... 
career-wise, it's been the best six months probably ever for me. So really, really well, really happy, really busy, um, and just getting opportunities that I kind of was like praying for my whole life or, you know, as, when I started doing this as a, as a career. So yeah, very, very well. Thank you. <laughs> well, I'm intrigued. I mean, you know, it's so rare that you actually hear about somebody who uh, has been thriving during this time and everyone's done their bit like you've said people have been in very difficult positions and especially in the arts and, and I mean I kind of classify uh, the space that we're in the media the arts the entertainment space has been particularly hard hit because theatres haven't been open comedy clubs haven't been open uh, live musicians haven't been able to perform so so what's made you know these past six months so fruitful for you? I think um, I was on the digital wave before it became a necessity so I, I wasn't really one of those who was in the stand-up um, clubs. I wasn't really in the theatres. I did my work mostly online and on Instagram and YouTube. So I kind of joined the digital revolution before it became the only way to make money. And I think having already established myself in this space meant that when people were looking for these types of comedians or these type of brand collaborations, I was already there. So yeah, I think that's probably what, what gave me a leg up is just being in the space before before um, COVID. Well, before we get into Lesejo Tlabi's alter ego, and a lot of people might be sitting here going, okay, Lesejo, I don't know if I've never heard of this name before and I might not know who this is. And and as we chat, you'll probably slowly but surely start understanding and putting two and two together. But Lesejo, take us through your career to date. Where did it all start for you? Did you study drama? Were you naturally funny at school? Were you that kid at school that always used to crack a joke and everyone used to laugh? Or, or was it quite the opposite? No, it was exactly that. Um, I was the class clown. I was the family clown. Um, I also used to make everyone sit down and watch me perform. Um, so whether it was my family or my friends, it'd be like, or when I get together with my friends, I'm like, okay, let's choreograph something. Let's um, show our parents how talented we are. And many of my friends weren't really interested in that, but they did it anyway. Um, so thanks to them. But yeah, I was, I was always making people laugh and it's always been part of my personality. So it was probably always going to end up being like this. And then when I got to varsity, I first had to study at BCom because it was a back and forth between my doctor parents as to how this child found drama in this family of doctors and economists. And they must have but, been thrilled. <laughs> I only lasted six months, so clearly it did not work. But yeah, then I, I finally went and studied theatre in London. And yeah, that's kind of how I got started in this. I am 31, so it wasn't like immediately after school, Coconut Curls popped. I had to work behind the scenes. Um, so I did TV production and writing for a couple of years before uh, the videos kind of took off. And where, where did you grow up in South Africa? I grew up in Sansendal. This oh, is Oh my goodness this me. Is me. Stop <laughs> me it. <laughs> um yeah, I grew up here in Santon, uh, mostly in Hyde Park and then Oh my goodness. <laughs> Darling. Jo jo join the I, club. You could have been my neighbor. <laughs> Sorry? I also grew up in Hyde Park. Now I'm giving away a lot. But uh, yeah, uh, Hyde Park Corner and me, yeah, we saw that place change. It had a checkers many years ago and a little uh, planet, uh, not a planet fitness, like a, like a gym. I used to do karate there. they have that rooftop deck that everybody just started coming to now? Yes. <laughs> oh my goodness. So let's say you're really in the thick of it in terms of coconut kel. So you understood the culture from day one. And then uh, how did you come up with the idea of coconut kels? Was it just a natural sort of thing? Did you one day, you know, as a lot of these things happen, you kind of joke around and you kind of do something and suddenly you go, hang on a second, that's actually quite funny. Um, I did a few characters on Snapchat. I don't know if you remember Snapchat. Yeah. But 
yeah, I think a lot of people that I was following were doing very um, serious, sexy kind of Snapchats, like selfies and makeup. And I just felt like, oh, no, I don't want the space to be that for me. So let me try and make people laugh. And then I was doing a couple of characters, but then I kept coming back to this one. And I used a filter actually with this one where she was an actual white girl. Then I kind of, you know, removed the filter, started doing it by myself. But also it was just for my friends. It was on Facebook. It was on a locked account. It wasn't something that I was, you know, giving to the public because I thought if people don't know me, they won't get this. And then it might get me in trouble. So it took about a year for me to put the first video out to make it public. And yeah, it was kind of one of those things where it evolved. It started, like I said, being a bit white facey. I know that's not a thing, but like using that filter (laughs) and then, you know, not using a filter anymore and then making it public and then having 10 followers and then a hundred. It was actually quite a slow progression. But yeah, I think the, the character came to me from school. She's, I always say she's like a, a group of people that I went to school with. She's the typical coconut that went to all the schools that I went to. She's kind of what my parents' worst nightmare of me <laughs> turning out after school was. Luckily, it, I didn't end up like that. But yeah, it was kind of just a group of girls I went to school with. Lesekho, we obviously live in a very charged and loaded society where anything can drive an entire social media crowd over the cliff. You know, coconut kells can at the same time be considered highly agitative or highly offensive towards uh, your northern suburbs sort of white uh, kugel, as they would call them. And at the same time, the picture of a coconut in terms of the greater South African society is also not really sort of, you know, the one that a lot of people gravitate to. How did you manage that? I mean, even even as a comedian, package it as, as funny or as comedy or as satire. A lot of people also don't understand that. Yeah, I think it's been a very slow also thing with people getting to understand exactly what I'm doing. But I think Kels is really charming. She's not rude. She's not mean. She's not, a you know, I'm not trying to, to offend anybody specifically. So I think she's quite likable because I think people can see I'm coming from a good place. But everybody recognizes something in Kells, whether it's their children that they sent to these private schools that they're worried about, <laughs> you know, they're going to turn into these kids or whether it's white people. Cause I do have a lot of friends um, and wider people who call and say, Oh my gosh, this reminds me of my aunt or my mother said the exact same thing. Or so it also reminds them of people they know and maybe they hold, you know, dear to them, but they understand that maybe their politics are not the best. But I think it's just because I come from a a good place. I think it's easy to offend people when you're coming from a maybe uneducated, but also malicious place. And that's not where I'm coming from. If you said Coconut Kells is sort of made up of people, uh, like a group of people that you went to school with, do you have like particular people in mind when you get into that character that you kind of draw your energy and your power from? Um, yeah, I guess it's, it's white girls. It's a, she's, she's got, I mean, coconut, I always explain because people are like, oh, but how is this not the same as Leon Schuster? Coconut Kells is a black girl. She is got black parents. She's black biologically or whatever racially. She just has a lot of the mentality and thinking of, you know, a typical white privileged girl in South Africa. So she went to these schools, got, I wouldn't say brainwashed, but she just lost sight of her blackness, doesn't want to associate with it. So she's very much the white girls I went to school with, but also across most all the schools I went to. And even when sometimes I listen to 702, when I read the DA um, community pages, <laughs> I see Coconut Kells there. So I think she gets her strength now 
I mean, I think the starting point was high school, but I think she's definitely evolved out of that because I don't interact with most of those people anymore. So it's more people I see because I'm a people watcher and anthropologist of like life. I just love watching people and how they talk and interact. And yesterday I was even at Paul and someone was explaining to their friend about how their son said the K word and she doesn't know what to do. So I'm a very, like I listen to conversations. I watch, you know, social media pages. 702 has great callers that are like Kells. So yeah, it's ma- it's mainly just picking up comments from society, I guess. How is Kells different to a Karen or are they the same thing? Well, Karens are white and they are usually older. So I think it's Becky that would be the same age as, as a Kells. A Karen is somewhere but like in, I don't know what the, was it was a Gen Y or something before millennials. So it's your mom's age. And that's what a Karen is. And she's got the same kind of views as Kells, but she's just an older white lady with antiquated views. Yeah. So the way things have been going, I mean, there's been a lot of criticism thrown at the government in terms of, you know, the, man- the way they've managed uh, lockdown, uh, smoking bans, cigarette bans, all of that. Uh, is there a chance that Coconut Kells might actually pack her bags and immigrate? <laughs> Coconut Kells has been trying to immigrate since, <laughs> since she was born, pretty much. <laughs> But not having a dual passport, you see, these are the things where I always uh, speak about the differences between wanting to be white and actually being white. Because a lot of her friends have those dual citizenship passports or their one parent is from England or Australia. Kels is blackity black and she's South African and she's stuck here and she's trying, but, you know, she doesn't really have a passport that allows much movement. Lesejo, we're going to still unpack so much more about yourself and your character. I think in the second half, we're also going to get Coconut Kells onto this call. I know she's busy uh, just having her, her soy latte or uh, her her breakfast at Tasha's, whatever it is that she does on a, on, on a morning routine. It's time for us to just jump into our stories making headlines in Santon for this week. This update is brought to you by megaflightdeals.com, your one-stop for non-stop cheap flights. And uh, they've got a great special uh, running again. It's on domestic flights from Durban to Johannesburg and Cape Town or vice versa. Uh, and some of the other destinations as well, like George, uh, what's the other one place? Uh, Kimberley. Uh, so you can do that from 689 Rand one way. And uh, then obviously it's a bit more if you want to come back again. Uh, you can book before 13th September 2020 and uh, we'll put the link in the show notes. Uh, just remember that it's, it's subject to availability and the fares based on departures in October. So if you're looking to fly in October and you want a good deal, go on to megaflightdeals.com and uh, have a look. See if there's uh, a, a good uh, a good price. And I know that uh, the, the route between Johannesburg and Durban seems to be uh, particularly well priced. So if that's uh, where you're looking to go, have a look at that. So stories making headlines uh, in Santon, well, I mean, literally uh, one of the biggest stories I think this week is uh, the renowned human rights activist and lawyer George Bezos who passed away. He was uh, 92 years old and uh, during the height of apartheid, Bezos uh, dedicated his professional career to the fight for human rights. And uh, he represented Walter Sisulu and Nelson Mandela in both the treason and Ravonia trial. Dedications, comments are coming in from, from all over uh, South Africa and the world. Then uh, also one of the really big stories this week uh, was this uh, story with uh, Clicks and Tresemme. And uh, Clicks, Woolworths Pick and Pay 
ShopRite uh, have all removed Tresemme products from their shelves. And this follows the widespread protest after a racist advert that was posted on the Clicks website this past week. And the Clicks store in Santon City uh, saw its uh, doors being closed uh, for most of this week. I believe they're going to try and uh, reopen or trade towards the end of this week. And uh, Tresemme is an American brand of hair care product, uh, first manufactured in 1947 and then acquired by Unilever in 2010. Uh, Lesejo, be quite interested to get your thoughts on this uh, Clicks Tresemme story. <laughs> um, yeah, I just think we need to transform advertising in general and most of these corporates because it was pretty obvious that this was a because there was no black people with a real voice in these um, boardrooms. As soon as I saw the image, I literally screamed. I was like, how, <laughs> how on earth could they pass this through the many channels it needs to go from, you know, creative to executive, creative director, to the brand itself, to the client, blah, 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 and back. To, to say that's okay, I just, oh, I don't, <laughs> I don't get it. But yeah, I think what's happening is a good thing. I think many boardrooms across the country now are panicking and re-looking at their advertising and looking at hiring people who, because you also don't want to be the black person who gets hired as some sort of, uh, you know, racism detector or whatever. <laughs> Filter, yeah. Yeah, like, okay, bring her in so she can read the ad and tell us if it's racist or not. Like, you want people to actually transform these boardrooms because they want to make a change themselves in the culture. Unilever's kind of been caught in this a lot of times. It's been with Dove. It's now Tresemme. There are a couple of products that they've had this type of problem. So it almost feels like the corporate culture at Unilever is racism. So they need to probably take a look at the drawing board and see how they can properly transform, have sensitivity training, just understand the the climate of South Africa and make it a bit, you know, make the boardrooms match the, the outside. I also found it amazing when I saw it pop up on social media and looked at the images and I'd spent quite a bit of time in, in marketing and in advertising as well. And I thought, how could this go out? I mean, yeah. just understanding the the sensitivities and what also just blew my mind was I always felt that corporate South Africa almost lived in this little rainbow nation bubble where there'd been a lot of sort of progression. I mean, you work with a lot of colleagues who are Indian, colored, white, black, you know, international, local, uh, people who've traveled the world. And, uh, you know, if you traveled 100 kilometers in any direction into, into you know, small towns, you still found a lot of tension and a lot of ignorance and a lot of whatever. And then when this popped up, I thought, wow, international companies listed organization and gone through departments that really I thought would understand you know the dynamics of how the stuff works and it just felt like such a bizarre error to make definitely but I, I actually wasn't surprised when I looked at it just because I had a conversation with um, a man called Amin Tilly and he's you know a really big deal in advertising and he's focused right now is transformation in advertising or the lack thereof so we had a conversation about how white advertising is. I mean, I've done ads before where I literally was the only black person on set and, you know, I'm not the in charge of the creative. I was the actress. So I, I really do feel like people need to look at their, their companies. And also when they are black people there, do they even have a voice? Because I do know a lot of people also in, you know, friends of mine in advertising who say most of the time they'll be brought into the room when it's time to come up with a slang term that's, that's the only time they need it there. It's like, okay, well, how do we say this in a, in a way that will, you know, reach the, the black youth? Engage the urban <laughs> demographic or whatever. Yeah. So, yeah, it's very much um, a situation where I just think they need to relook at what roles the black people that they do hire get to play. But also, like I said, it shouldn't be up to these black people 
to carry anti-racism on their backs. It should be a part of the company policy. And if the executives need to go for some sort of training to understand what that means, then they need to do that. But it's not also fair to hire black people and then say, you know, if anything goes wrong, we trusted you to read the, the racism and delete it. Because um, not, not every black person also knows how to read nuances like that, but also we just want to work and make money like you. We don't want to be there as the racism filter. Yeah, like some sort of Cold War spy that kind of has to give you sort of intel on, uh, yeah. you know, what's happening on the other side of the, the border. Yeah, no, I absolutely hear you. Well, so anyways, that's Theresa May, and uh, they seem to be taking a, a massive uh, a knock as a lot of these retailers are now removing them from the shelves. Then on a, on a slightly different note, uh, it's back on the field at the Discovery uh, Soccer Park in Santon. So for the facilities, uh, they were closed during the hard lockdown, but have partially reopened since non-contact sports were allowed, reports the Santon Chronicle. There are no matches as yet, but rather smaller lessons up to four players in a class, training ball, mastery, fitness, and agility are, are sort of the things that kids are getting to do. Everyone has to wear a face mask. Only one player is allowed a water break at a time. Temperatures are taken and questionnaires are filled out upon arrival. They are sanitizing stations and soccer balls are sanitized between sessions. Parents have to collect their children in a specific place and no one must touch the soccer ball. So <laughs> there you go. If you're into uh, soccer, if your kids are into soccer, that's uh, the name of the game at the Discovery Soccer Park, Santon. And uh, do you watch uh, soccer at all? Are you sort of a, an international local soccer watcher? I used to. I used to be a very big international soccer watcher. And I supported Chelsea specifically during the era of Drogba, Lampard, John Terry. Um, but I think as I grew older, I kind of became very much more of like a girl's girl. And yeah, and then I lost interest. <laughs> oh, wow. I still watch it now and then, but it's not... It's not something I follow anymore. Well, I must say, I've never been a Premier League kind of person who watches sort of, you know, Manchester United and all these things. I'm more into sort of the World Cups and the, the more regional tournaments. But the other day I was watching the one of the, one of the finals and I found it amazing now that they've got these empty stadiums that they've now added in the sort of background noise of fans, even though there's no one in the stadium. And I thought there must be some guy sitting somewhere with a mixing desk, like almost like a, um, a soccer match DJ who now has to basically have like the the ongoing background noise of people singing and cheering and then slowly but surely sort of fade in a, a sort of a scream or a cheer or you know oh, if the, when, if, it, when it gets closer to goal yes or if there's a goal then there's like whoa you know and I thought what a job to have <laughs> to sit there for 90 minutes and have to sort of DJ the background noise to to these games and I mean, can I mean you you're not getting gigs right now um I would work for the Premier League <laughs> if you're the DJ and clubs are closed hey that's a good gig for me I mean we watched uh, an NBA game so they invited us a few people to to join in on the NBA Zoom or Microsoft Teams actually and we were simulcast into the actual arena so the players could see us watching them and cheering and like our volume was up um, and it was different people. Like, I think we were the Africa team. There was Europe, there was North America. There were different people who had been gathered to watch this game live and they could hear our audio and see us in the, on the screen. So it was pretty, it was pretty interesting how they're starting to do this whole technology sports thing right now. I must say that works for me as well. I, I saw that, uh, I was flicking through the channels and I came across, uh, is it WWE, the, the wrestling uh, guys? And I see they've kind of created this sort of 
Zoom arena of just like, you know, hundreds of screens of people that sort of tune in. And it looks a bit odd because obviously it's not in proportion to the ring and to the size of the, the stadium. But at least you've got sort of like 500 or 1,000 faces that are all sitting in their pajamas at home, um, clapping or cheering. And it kind of gives it a little bit of a vibe because it's a bit like being a, a performer on stage. I mean, if you're not performing to an audience, then what are you doing? It, it, you know, you just don't feed off anything. This is true, but I also have done Zoom performances and I can tell you now, the in-person thing uh, is so much better. <laughs> Performing for a screen is not, uh, like, yeah, it gives a bit more of a vibe and everything, but it's, Oh, it's just horrible. <laughs> it's well, talk, talking about performing in front of a screen, a, a last story for this week is uh, South Africans are not paying for their TV licenses. And uh, my broadband reports that the South African Broadcasting Corporation, also known as the SABC, is having a serious problem getting South Africans to pay for their TV licenses. Uh, the public broadcaster also said it has legal recourse against South Africans who do not pay their TV licenses. And according to the Broadcasting Act of 1999, those who do not pay for their TV licenses will face a fine not exceeding 500 rand or imprisonment for up to six months. Uh, plans are underway to minimize the shortfall, however, in uh, in cash collections, and this will include marketing campaigns and settlement of outstanding fees. So uh, there'll be probably more of those ads saying it's the right thing to do. I, I can't remember when's the last time I watched an SABC channel, but <laughs> like, how do you even how do you actually monitor that? How are you going to go to everybody's house and get this thing? Most of us are watching you know, DSTV online or Netflix or, you know, Showmax. Yeah, yeah, I mean, YouTube. I mean, I find myself watching so much YouTube. I mean, there's so much amazing content on there. I remember when they had those stories about the van that used to drive around that had like some sort of magnet or radar. That yeah, would... like <laughs> detect who hasn't paid and then go inside. No, it's just, I think people are going to have to want to do the right thing. But for the most part, I don't see how they're going to actually find the people and, and make them pay. Well, maybe they should get together with Sanrel and maybe they could do sort of like a TV license e-toll combo because people <laughs> don't seem to be paying the e-tolls either. So, you know, exactly. they, can, they can get a van together and then sort of... Go detect. <laughs> go, go around and detect if your TV license and your Sanrel is up to date because you've got that little thing in the mirror, uh, in the window. So maybe that's sort of got like a transmitter or, or something exciting. So, yeah, but I guess people are also finding it tight. You know, people don't have uh, the kind of money that they had maybe a year, two years ago to, to splurge out on uh, on anything. So I guess your, whatever it is, 200 or 300 rand for your TV license every year is just uh, not another one of those expenses that people want to incur. Um, it's also an inconvenience. I think even with like e-tolls, it's not because I don't have the money or, or whatever it is. I, I don't even know where to go to get that, like, ugh. Oh my God, they're going to come find me now. But <laughs> I just, it's just an inconvenience. If, if they come to my house, I'm happy to pay. But I don't know if I'm like going to look for them. Lesecha, what we'll do in the, in the edit, we'll put in a, sort of that, you know, that sort of blurred voice. <laughs> you know, okay, cool. The carte blanche voice. That, that's that's right. Yeah, yeah. We, we nobody knows who you are or where you live. Uh, well, we did say Hyde Park, so we're in a bit of trouble now. But yeah. Anyway, so that's the. That was my childhood home. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the the news for this week. And uh, yeah, before we get into anything else, let's also quickly check in on our business update for this week. All right, on the line, Director and Portfolio Manager of uh, Rand Swiss, Gary Boyce. And Gary, good to have you on again. 
Yeah, very good to be back on the podcast, Alex. Always, always a pleasure. So, Gary, a lot of analysts saying that uh, we're possibly at the bottom of what has been quite a, a steep economic downturn. Uh, are we entering an upswing again, or are we still going to be hanging around the bottom for a bit longer? Yeah, so it depends on how you measure it, I suppose. So if you, if you look at the second quarter GDP uh, annualized numbers, which is uh, basically a decrease of 51%, you would expect it to kind of kick back from there because uh, that was essentially measuring the period where we were in level five lockdown and we had uh, you know the most uh, restrictions on economic activity. So yes, I would think that things are going to get better from here because people are back at work. But at the same time, for me, it's not so much about uh, will things get better. It's how quickly will they get better, and how um, and will we, and at what point will we achieve economic uh, activity uh, comparable to to the kind of pre-COVID environment? I think that that really is key, and that is almost anyone's guess. So yes, it's getting better from the worst, but it is is it going to recover to where it was? And that's that at the moment is still very very uncertain. If you look at financial markets, so if you look at something like a, an an equity market index, like the the top. 40, that is generally the best predictor of economic activity. It's a, it's a leading indicator. And markets have recovered. So markets are telling us that that like real economic activity will recover. But you know, looking looking at the, I suppose, the, the plight of so many business owners, chatting to so many of our clients, and just hearing the, the absolute decimation that has happened because of the, the, the lockdowns and, and the coronavirus, it's difficult to see that uh, that we're going to get back to those, those, uh, those pre-COVID levels anytime soon. I see agriculture seems to have been doing quite well over the last six months. Yeah, so that's, it's interesting you point that out. So, so agriculture obviously was one of the services that uh, that was, was deemed as an essential service. So there, there are segments of the economy that have uh, obviously managed to operate and, and agriculture was one of them. I mean, food production is an essential service. So even to an extent, if you look at the mining sector, I mean, mines very quickly were allowed to reopen and, and kind of operate at a 50% capacity just, just to kind of, uh, you know, provide that kind of care and maintenance. So, yeah, there, there are sectors of the economy that, that were active. I mean, you look at the financial services sector as well. You know, many, many financial services companies were were operational throughout the period because it was deemed as an essential service. It, you, you can't just shut down the local local exchange, for example. But yeah, agriculture was obviously one of one of the, the sectors that did manage to, I suppose, skip skip the worst of the lockdown. And that's, I suppose, is optimistic in a way that, that we're going to get, get bumper crops this year if you look at, uh, you know, let's say maize harvest, for example. Well, further down the value chain, talking about agriculture, I also see that ShopRite checkers also seem to have had uh, some booming business during this time. So ShopRite's interesting. Uh, you, you know, the market clearly wasn't expecting them to do just quite as well as they did. So if, if you look at it again, ShopRite, it's one of one of those uh, one of those companies that that was able to operate, uh, you know, under the heavy lockdowns uh, recently. And these are the kind of economic numbers that are starting to filter through to the market. So um, yes, it did have some limitations on the products that it was selling because you know, I, I mean, I'm sure many of the listeners will remember the you know the tape over certain shelves as you you could only sell you know specific types of clothing items and there were, there were you did have some restrictions on, on the company but at the same time they they were almost operating an environment where there was no other competition it was the, almost the people's only entertainment was able to go to go to your shop right checkers and do some grocery shopping otherwise you were locked in your house and and clearly that has resulted in more people going out and and, and visiting shop right and, and 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 buying more more products uh, you know obviously they did pick up uh, they, they would have picked up um 
uh, revenue growth just on the back of, you know, for example, uh, takeaways being banned for a period and, and the ability to go to restaurants being banned. So instead of ordering that pizza from your, your debonairs, you might have uh, gone and bought, a, a, you know, an oven pizza from, from ShopRite instead. And I mean, that's clearly reflected in the sales numbers. So, I mean, they, they kind of had bumper revenue. I mean, their, their, their sales was a record sales uh, uh, for the period up, up 557 billion. Um, and that's just sent the share price absolutely rocketing. I mean, it was up 10% on the re release of the results. It, it continued to run the day afterwards. And I see it's on my watch list today. It's uh, the top mover up, up 3% again today. So certainly the market, I don't think was expecting it to be quite as, as good as it was. Obviously, a lot of the, the JSC listed companies have also withheld their dividends. Uh, you know, the Reserve Bank has told most of the banking stocks to, uh, at least most of the banks to to withhold dividends just to kind of shore up their, their, their tier one capital ratios. So ShopRite, though, is paying a dividend. So, so it's one of those companies that shareholders are actually looking at and saying, wait a minute, they're treating shareholders well. This is this is a company that uh, that has done well over the lockdown period and that we can make some money off. The whole thing has been a bit of a, a black swan, an anomaly in terms of the world. But I guess it also might also give us a bit of direction in terms of what sectors or what businesses to potentially invest in going forward that are almost, I don't know, recession proof or pandemic proof. Yeah, absolutely. So if you, if you look at it, and I mean, this is really the, I suppose, the theme that's happened overseas, which is the the, the mega cap tech stocks um, that typically operate in an environment that don't require that kind of brick and mortar presence uh, have absolutely rocketed. So we had some news uh, on Monday, it was actually broken by the Financial Times uh, around, uh, it's basically derivative positions being taken by SoftBank. And, and specifically, yeah, and, and, and I mean, that, that in a way has explained the, the the, the mammoth rally we've seen in tech. But another explanation and probably a simpler exp explanation is that uh, market participants at the moment are just looking for anything that is going to survive the, the pandemic. And they, they're looking at companies like uh, the Googles and Facebooks and the Zooms and the Slacks of the world. And they're saying these are, you know, let's take Microsoft, for example, as, as another one. These are companies that are going to benefit from people having to work from home. It's going to benefit from people being in lockdown as companies, you know, accelerate their digitization. Um, and and that uh, and those companies, you know, have commanded you know impressive multiples overseas, and we've seen an enormous share price rally in those companies. Now, whether it's justified or not, or, and whether the market is maybe baking a little bit too much into them, uh, given the given what they're actually uh, able to deliver in terms of earnings, uh, is is another discussion entirely. But but for now, the, the, those kind of recession-proof, the lockdown, the, almost like the the apocalypse-proof stocks, um, are going to be your tech companies. Um, um, but at the at the moment, you know, after the kind of run that we've seen on on, on many of them, uh, I think investors should be cautious, should be very very cautious about entering at these levels. Well, Gary, what uh, shares and what stocks are you keeping an eye on this September? What's uh, caught your your eye? Uh, so we into September we, we manage the majority of our money overseas. So we you know we still obviously look at the local markets. Uh, we still have uh, a lot of exposure to South Africa, but uh, with the, the main portfolio that I run being uh, you know uh, internationally based, naturally we're going to be looking at uh, some of the international markets. Specifically, we we've been a little bit concerned about the tech valuations. So we hold uh, Microsoft, Nvidia, Amazon in the portfolio. We also hold a, a fairly large position in Visa. 
uh, but we have been reducing uh, those positions into into the uh, over the last couple of months, uh, both on the portfolio and in client accounts. The idea is that uh, just uh, the, the valuations of the, of these tech stocks just just aren't quite justified. We still like the the, the fundamental businesses in the companies. Um, it's just a, a slight valuation concern. Now, uh, what that's meant is that we have freed up some cash and we are deploying cash into the market. Uh, obviously, with the currency being a little bit stronger at around 16.60, we're also seeing a lot of clients uh, opting to move uh, move money internationally by dollars pounds euros etc the, the the sector of the market that we really prefer at the moment is 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 the uh, us uh, big four listed banking sector so the likes of jp morgan citibank uh, wells fargo bank of america uh, these are companies that uh, haven't quite recovered as much <clears throat> from the uh, initial sell off that we saw in march i think the uh, market participants are still fairly concerned about what lower interest rates and what the uh, uh, the high unemployment rate in, in the U.S. is going to do uh, for its uh, its loan, uh, or at least for, for many of those banks' loan books. Our view, though, is that uh, U.S. unemployment is recovering a lot quicker than people expected. So when unemployment in the U.S. got, to, you know, it's sort of towards 16%, it's managed to reverse, uh, you know, all the way back to 8.4% at the last at the last print as, as people go back to work. The, the fiscal stimulus programs in the U.S. have also been fairly extensive, which has helped to support, uh, uh, you know, essentially consumers and, and, and the man in the street. And I think that while, yes, the, the earnings are going to be impacted in the short term, I don't think that, that we're quite going to see those defaults coming through. And, and many of these banks have made significant provisions already. So they are looking fairly cheap. Uh, it is a difficult environment, but if you're looking on a, a three to five year view, I really believe that uh, that you're going to do well. Um, if you consider the size of the, the likes of Citibank or, or JP Morgan, which are our two preferred companies, uh, these these are really banks that are just too big to fail. If if we see you know a, a proper capitulation in, in either of those two banks, um, it will be a global event. There's no question about it. So I think there's a you know, given the valuation, there's, there's a significant margin of safety on the downside, um, and investors are, are looking out on a, a three to five year view, I think are going to do very, very well, um, as we have to assume that the world normalizes and, and people get back to work and uh, we start to recover from the, the, the horror that has been uh, 2020. Well, Gary Boyson, Director and Portfolio Manager at Ranswiss, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the, the podcast again. And uh, we look forward to checking in with you again soon. Perfect. Thanks for having me, Alex. Lesejo, I mean, as a, as a performer, as an artist, uh, you know, it's very uh, unpredictable cash flow, unpredictable uh, income. Uh, how have you managed to sort of manage your, your business affairs? Okay, brands pay well, first of all. So I would advise people to, <laughs> to try to get TVCs going and things like that. Um, but I'm really, I'm working all the time. I think people know how busy I am. Every single day I'm doing something different. So that was also coming in. But I've also been looking, I mean, sitting down with a team and strategizing how to branch out of just being, you know, having one uh, form of income. Because even though I do many jobs under the entertainment umbrella, I think it's a bit, you know, to sit on just being an entertainer and think it's going to last forever is also short-sighted. So definitely also sitting and thinking about how I can diversify what businesses I can either invest in or create um, as a side business to to the main business right now so that even if this doesn't really you know maybe the phone calls start drying up or whatever it is i still have you know something else going for me that makes money um so yeah right now we're in the planning strategizing phase of that it's interesting how you talk about the corporate uh, industry being such a, a key 
part of your cash flow, key part of your income. And so often you find with a lot of corporates, especially I think in the comedy space, where they'll book a comedian or they'll kind of sign up a comedian for a campaign and they'll be like, look, you know, can't have any swearing, can't have any polarization. Like it has to be like super squeaky clean and super safe because they don't want to upset anybody. Do you find that Coconut Kells is sometimes that character where, where companies are not sure if it's a safe bet or, or not? Um, I think it used to be like that. I remember, you know, two or three years ago, I got a campaign for a big financial institution and we did the shoot, we did the ad, we did the photo shoots, everything. And just before everything came out, they were like, oh, no, actually, no, it's too much. This girl is too political. Like, we just can't do it. So I think it took maybe like take a lot or something like that for people to see how you can use the dangerous parts of what I do. <laughs> But also that the, the audience seems to enjoy what I do because I think I get a lot away with maybe a lot more than anybody else actually who says the same thing because I've created this persona and this character and people know the background of why I do what I do. So it's also very important for me when I when I meet up with a brand to say I'm, I'm willing to obviously compromise some stuff. I won't mention political party names or, you know, whatever, but don't hire Coconut Kills if you don't want Coconut Kills. Go to somebody else who's more palatable or safer if you're looking for that kind of thing. So I've been very lucky that brands are still willing to say, okay, let's take a chance. And for the most, not even for the most part, it's always worked out um, in both our favor. So yeah, I, I wouldn't work with someone who says, you know, we can't speak about race at all, or we can't mention anything to do with politics because then it doesn't, it doesn't feel true to my brand. And then it's kind of selling out. Have you ever had an incident where, you know, you're lying on Camps Bay, sort of catching a tan, sipping a cocktail, and someone's come up to you and said, listen, uh, I, I see your stuff, and it's highly offensive, and I'm and I'm not happy? No. Um, first of all, I would never just lie on the beach in Camps Bay. It's, like, not my thing. I'd be at the cocktail bars across the road. But, um, no, no one's ever come to me in person and said it's offensive. Some people have, like, messaged me, but it's been so few. Most of the people who message me, it's because they don't get that it's a character. They think it's a real person. So my views are offensive because I'm supposed to be proud and black and here I am, you know, being anti-black and what's wrong with me and who are my parents. So, yeah. And I think also a lot of people are braver behind screens and behind their phones than they are in real life. I think even if people did, um, you know, hate me or not like my work and I've, I've felt, you know, some <laughs> side eyes, but I think nobody's going to really go up to someone and, and tell them as much because... I think, yeah, people are just braver when they have when they have a phone in their hands and we're far apart. For the most part, every single time people come up to me, it's um, been really positive uh, and really cool and we have conversations and pictures and things like that, but it's never, it's, I've never been approached in a negative way. On, on the note of your parents, you were saying earlier on that they're doctors and you also come from a family of economists and all of this. And I remember Trevor Noah telling the story about his Swiss dad when you first tried to explain to him that he's doing stand-up comedy and uh, kind of said, look, you know, he tells jokes and then, you know, people laugh. And then his dad said, oh, you're a clown. And he says, uh, no, no, I'm, I'm a stand-up comedian. He goes, yeah, it's a clown. Uh, do you feel that your, your parents have kind of now maybe looked at this slightly differently now that you've uh, found uh, quite a bit of success and also you, you're really gaining traction in the market? Yeah, the comedy thing came later for me. It was the it was trying to tell them I want to be an actress or I want to be in entertainment. That was the problem. So once I started working behind the scenes in TV and started getting traction with Coconut Kells and then they saw what was happening, it was much easier to, to then say, okay, I want to leave my job and pursue this full time. Um, but the initial struggle wasn't, you know, with telling them I want to be a comedian. It was with saying, 
I don't want to do BCom. I don't want to be in business. I don't want to be a doctor. I want to be a star. Um, and for them to say, okay, but do people really make money? Um, will you be able to live the kind of life you lived growing up um, with the kind of job you want to go for? So yeah, it took a while for that. But once I was, you know, I mean, also my first big interview was on ENCA. So I think for them, it was like, I'm being taken seriously by you know, I'm not just a comedian in terms of haha jokes. It's like satire, news agencies and broadcasters are taking me seriously. So yeah, I think it was much better there because it was like, oh, she's like a serious person. <laughs> so you had quite a few interviews. I, th- I believe you had an interview with the BBC uh, this week as well, this past week. I did. It was the most exciting thing. But I was in my head, I was like, I'm performing for Queen Elizabeth right now. So give it your all. <laughs> but yeah, it was, it was quite nice to have a, a international platform for the first time. That's fantastic. Uh, do you have any aspirations of actually going onto a live stage? I know as an actor and an actress, it's, it's always great to do something in front of a live audience. And although that's not really been your thing so far, do you see yourself doing like a, a one woman show or some sort of uh, performance where you go to Edinburgh and all those sort of notable comedy festivals and, and give uh, people a taste of coconut curls? I've been spoken, like I've spoken to a few comedians, you know, about this and I've been persuaded to try and see how I can make it happen. It's not really my desire. Um, Coconut Kells also for me wasn't something I wanted to lead with for the rest of my life. Like I understand how many opportunities I've gotten because of her and I'm like so grateful and so happy for all the jobs I've gotten and, and, and opportunities, but I didn't want to have a career that is just Coconut Kells. So even now I think I'm doing videos here and there, but I'm taking more of a backseat just for Coconut Kells herself, because I studied theater and drama because I wanted to act and do other things outside of remaining one character for the rest of my life. So yeah, I I mean, maybe in a few years time, if I feel like I need to pick me up or I need to like, you know, Coconut Kells is fading a bit, I don't know. Um, But also life is so long. I don't know what I'm gonna want to do in the future. Right now, it's not really a, a thought of mine. Lisejo, it's been absolutely awesome having you on the show. Uh, we're coming to the end of part one of this podcast. I actually can't believe it. And uh, in a few minutes, we're actually going to catch up with uh, Coconut Kells herself. And uh, yeah, we're going to have a chat to her. So so that's the end of part one of episode 24, week 37 of 2020. And you're listening to the Santon Times podcast.